Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. My name is Max Delaney. I'm Artistic Director, and I'd like to welcome you all and thank you for joining us this evening for this final stop in our 2017 Cities of Architecture Lecture Series. Uh, I'd like to um, sincerely acknowledge the Boon traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, uh, along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin nations, and we extend our respects to elders past and present, and to all First Nations people who join us this evening. Over the past year, we have visited inspiring places and explored many diverse cultural and architectural contexts, including Tokyo, Isfahan, Barcelona, Venice, and Shanghai. And we're delighted to conclude the series this evening with a final visit to Guadalajara, led by Diego Ramirez Lovering. Mexico has become one of the cultural powerhouses in the 21st century, and Guadalajara is a culturally compelling metropolis, the second most popular city in Mexico, and home to a rich um, architectural culture, perhaps most well known through the work of Luis Barragan. As one of Latin America's fastest growing cities, Guadalajara is a combination of the old and the new, with the city's rich cultural background of strong tradition and folklore, as well as its renown for tequila and mariachi, sits alongside the country's emerging contemporary arts and architectural scene. However, as Diego will also argue, the city faces growing challenges stemming from social problems and poverty. In his talk, Diego will explore the idea of opportunistic urbanism, how Guadalajara is increasingly governed by opportunity and shaped by the ad hoc, the contingent, and the easily obtainable. I should also note, for those with a specific interest in Mexico and in the global context of contemporary art more generally, that ACCA is currently working towards a major exhibition called Dwelling Poetically, Mexico City, a Case Study, which explores Mexico City as one of the great crossroads of North America, which has taken prominence not only as one of the America's most populous urban centers and as Latin America's strongest economy, but also as a node of rich and potent cultural production. The exhibition we are developing with um, renowned Mexico City-based curator Chris Sharp, and it will run from April through June 2018. Now, I should also note that our thoughts are with the people of Guadalajara and Mexico after the recent devastating earthquakes. Before introducing our guest speaker this evening, I'd again like to thank our partners, Abercrombie and Kent, bespoke travel consultants who offer unique, informed and inspiring travel and cultural experiences around the world. Abercrombie and Kent um, have also this evening offered a $500 voucher, which you'll um, find with your pack of um, documentation to our guests this evening towards the Day of the Dead travel um, group journey that they are hosting. And you can find further details on the flyer. And I'd also like to thank the Melbourne Gin Company, who this evening have composed the Pearl of the West, inspired by the Paloma and the Red Earth of Guadalajara. And I really would like to sincerely thank our partners over the course of the year for helping make the series so convivial. Um, it's now my great pleasure to welcome and introduce Professor Diego Ramirez Lovering, who is Deputy Dean and Associate Dean Engagement in the Faculty of Art, Design and Architecture at Monash University. Diego is an award-winning architectural practitioner and researcher previous head of architecture at Monash and co-founder of the Monash Urban Laboratory. Diego is currently leading the development of design and engagement models for an extraordinary global research consortium using the principles of water-sensitive urban design to advance human health and well-being in informal settlements by transforming housing, water infrastructure, water management and sanitation practices in 24 communities in Fiji and Indonesia. The research is led by a co-design process with a project team that includes researchers, architects, engineers, sociologists, ecologists, medical researchers, epidemiologists, and economists. The project is titled Revitalization of Informal Settlements and Their Environments, and it includes a $14 million grant from the Wellcome Trust's Our Planet, Our Health program and funding from the Asian Development Bank for Capital Works, and it promises to have significant impact for wider global contexts. Diego grew up in Guadalajara, so he's especially well-placed to introduce us to its architectural and cultural complexities. In addition, Diego is especially well-prepared, having turned up exactly 12 months ago to this day to deliver this evening's lecture. So <laughs> please, may I welcome Diego ramirez Lovering.
<laughs> Thank you very much, Max, particularly for that last uh, comment. Very embarrassing. Um, uh, so I'm delighted to be here. Good evening, um, and thank you very much uh, for the invitation. Thanks, Annabelle, for all your work. Um, I think it's been an amazing series and really great to see um, architecture and urban issues, I guess, being brought to the foreground general audience. I think that's fantastic. Um, so today uh, I'd like to talk about Guadalajara. Now, I'll give you a little bit of context. I've been out of Guadalajara for many years. I left in 1990 um, to live uh, in the United States and other places, um, never, never to go back for any extended period of time. So I have been in some way, um, be, I've become in, in some way a, 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 an observer. I observe it at a distance and I observe its, uh, its development, which has been, um, in many ways, uh, amazing. It's, a, it's Mexico's second largest city, so it's got about six million people in its uh, larger metropolitan area. Not anything yet like Mexico City, which is more like 23 million. But, um, but it's growing quickly. It's growing quickly through um, uh, um, uh, people moving from Mexico City, which has become um, basically too large to sustain a kind of decent life and also uh, from immigration from other Latin American countries, um, particularly in South, uh, South America. So <clears throat> I've observed it from afar and watched it develop into a thriving metropolis in many ways, as uh, um, Max mentioned, with a really interesting contemporary art scene, um, which I, my brother is a, a painter, contemporary artist, and so I, I keep a close eye on that, um, but also, a very, very sinister, very sad um, development of the drug wars uh, and, um, and the whole, um, uh, uh, I guess, um, industry that has damaged uh, the country so much, but in particular Guadalajara. Um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more, I don't want to dwell on that, but it is I guess, in that sense, the talk is structured in two ways. It's like a tale of two cities, or the one city, it's kind of bright, and it's not so bright sides. Um, it's, it is, as Max said, uh, very well known. In some ways, uh, you could say it's the most Mexican of cities. A lot of the things that are really well known about Mexico come from Guadalajara, so tequila and mariachi, the music, and a lot of its arts and crafts, um, and some delicious food. Um, and, um, and then, uh, and, and its architecture and art scene, which are great. And then on the other hand, it has been uh, home to some of the worst uh, offending cartels um, in, in the country. Um, most notoriously, El Chapo Guzman, and there's a really quite harrowing uh, series on Netflix if you're interested um, about El Chapo. So we're effectively going through what uh, Bogota, Colombia, and Medellin, Colombia went through, you know, maybe 25 years or so ago. So, so I'll talk a little bit about then, I guess, what I love about the city, some of the, some of the um, great things about it, um, and just some quick snapshots, because um, uh, there's a lot to talk about, but some quick snap snapshots, and then I'll talk um, about the other side, um, not so much about the drugs per se, but ab about the abject poverty and the um, social conditions of inequality that are not, you know, not um, uh, uh, unlike many uh, uh, cities in developing world contexts, particularly as, Ma as Max mentioned, um, in, in our immediate partners in Indonesia where I'm doing this large project on slums, I, I really feel like there are many parallels, so there's some there's some sections of extreme wealth in the city, um, and then there's some areas, of course, of abject poverty and um, inequality. So, the city uh, was founded uh, around in the early 1500s um, from uh, colonial uh, um, uh, our visitors from Spain, and it's really developed into this um, into this really interesting hybrid of European, well, Southern European traditions and um, the range of different um, indigenous cultures that were there. We didn't have Aztecs or 
Olmecs or Incas or Mayans, uh, so they weren't some of the larger civilizations, but we had a huge variety of smaller civilizations that have produced some, uh, some very unusual, maybe less well-known uh, um, uh, um, pyramids and um, um, cities, in this case, just, uh, um, just about 10 kilometers uh, south of the mountain of Tequila. Um, and the city is very well known for, um, I guess, its exuberance. The culture is very rich, and people are very loud, and it's very intense. And this is one example of a, of a well-known um, uh, building. Um, architecturally, I find it really quite unbelievably weird, um, I have to say. But, um, but it has been a phenomenon in uh, it's the church uh, of the light of the world, it's called. And it's effectively a kind of sect that is composed of some very wealthy um, followers that have created these, these monuments. And um, there are a number of different uh, sects, not sects, but uh, religious groups that are very wealthy. Um, Opus Dei is very prevalent, um, the Legionaries of Christ. Uh, these groups that are incredibly powerful, incredibly conservative, and very, very rich. Um, it is, of course, the, um, the birthplace of uh, Luis Barragan. Now, for those of you that aren't architects here, Luis Barragan is Mexico's only uh, Pritzker Prize laureate. He was granted the Pritzker Prize in 1980. And he grew up in Guadalajara um, and uh, produced some of his early work there and then moved to Mexico City uh, to do some of his later work there. Um, and this is just a little bit of a snapshot of, of his work that used very vibrant colors, light, um, uh, um, water, reflections. He was like a spatial poet. Um, and I'd be curious to see uh, the, the uh, exhibition that's coming up here about, um, about Mexicans, uh, uh, Mexican architecture. And he was effectively the grandfather, the whole movement of of beautiful, um, really inspiring architecture, including the architect of, Luis, of uh, Le Gorreta, who is um, who's, uh, still working, uh, is very prolific, um, and a very, very interesting sort of postmodernist um, uh, that uses local materials, bright colors. Um, so this, in, in some way, this epitomizes the culture. It's brash, but beautiful and loud, but in some ways, um, uh, really um, uh, recognizable. Um, it has uh, some quite amazing architecture. Generally, this this is a this is the largest uh, indoor market um, in all of Latin America. It's called the Market of San Juan de Dios in the central in the center of town. Uh, has 40,000 square meters and about 3,000 stalls. And if you ever do go there, you have, to, uh, you have to go to the market. If you ever go to the city, you have to go to the market um, and spend uh, a whole day there. It is um, sensational. And the building itself is, um, is, uh, was modeled, um, is the, architect, the architect that designed it was a student of Pierre Luigi Nervi, who was a very well-known Italian um, um, I guess you could call them a kind of structuralist, very well known for their, their exuberant uh, concrete structures. And, and there are some very good examples here. Um, some older buildings, incredible interiors. This is the, um, the theater in the, in the center of town, um, the main uh, sort of state theater, um, which holds concerts um, daily. Uh, it's very well attended. And again, it has a very vibrant uh, culture for the Philharmonic Orchestra, as well as all types of um, kind of music and events. Um, Melbourne is similar, actually. <laughs> There's so many events here. Guadalajara, in, in that regard, um, is, uh, is, is quite, a, quite incredible. There's so, something always happening. Um, churches, some incredible churches, um, you know, from our colonial, post-colonial sort of tradition, um, some neo-Gothic, uh, really incredible interiors from a culture that's very, very Catholic, fervently Catholic, 99.7% Catholic. Um, 
So if you're not Catholic in Mexico, you're in trouble. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. And some, uh, again, not, not quite contemporary art, but Orozco uh, uh, um, is a very famous um, muralist, and some of you may have heard about him, and he did some of his most incredible work in Guadalajara, including a very large cupola um, that he painted um, in the center of town um, in, uh, in a, what used to be a hospice uh, um, building. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and some very, very interesting contemporary art. And this is the art of Gonzalo Lebrija, an up-and-coming uh, up artist who's now showing in, um, well, all over the world. Um, and this is, in fact, not far from my parents' house, um, where he's um, basically um, followed a, a sort of initially smallish group of artists who decided to not go to Mexico City, which is a real international hub of contemporary art, and stay and develop um, a, a more local kind of um, uh, production of contemporary art. Which so that, and that often involves local landscapes with some surreal sort of elements, clearly like this. Um, some beautiful landscapes; they are absolutely magnificent. This is this is where tequila comes from. So um, that's not tequila there, but it's sort of behind, and and the it's a, a very um, difficult uh, type of cactus plant to grow. It only grows in very particular types of weather. Um, and um, there's, an, there's an area around here that is, um, that is really covered in these agave plants for making tequila. And they're known as blue, blue agave because they shimmer as blue in the sunlight. It's actually quite spectacular. And small, a small scattering of towns. So Guadalajara, of course, a big metropolis. But a small scattering of towns that have um, still some sort of um, quite um, um, remarkable, almost medieval structures. Um, um, this one, Tapalpa, which, is, which date back, dates back to the 17th century. Um, this is a small town of about 20,000 people. Some really, um, I think, interesting kind of hybrid activities between what used to be, of course, a polytheistic um, indigenous culture, um, and not only polytheistic, there were many different indigenous cultures, and the kind of Spanish, uh, um, uh, I guess, Catholicism primarily, into, um, into these um, really interesting sort of hybrids of um, kind of uh, well-known Christian symbols that, are, that become, much, that sort of become morphed into uh, different um, kinds of uh, gods, and um, this is a very famous day, the Day of the Dead, which is um, uh, in early November, um, and it's um, a celebration of the dead, which is not um, was a, a common occurrence for indigenous cultures, but then it happens in cemeteries, which are full of crosses, um, so there's these really intense juxtapositions of kind of Catholicism and, um, and indigenous religious religions. Of course, <laughs> um, wrestling, and I grew up with uh, really great uh, uh, wrestling movies, um, and it's become a, they're, they're, there's a kind of cult following of these, uh, of these uh, wrestling, of these, of these figures, of these wrestlers that become like superheroes. Um, and again, they are all, um, masked, so there's this whole kind of persona. Uh, they become, they're, they're all, um, uh, um, uh, their um, identity is hidden, um, and, um, and there's this whole thing about how uh, at the end of their career, finally they come out and reveal their identity and they unmask themselves. And it's a, it's a whole, whole kind of culture around it, which has been um, very, um, very important, at least in my um, upbringing. Huge parties, huge uh, um, kind of events. Um, in this case, a really big um, dance that happens once a year right in front of our uh, uh, basilica. And then, of course, um, 
mariachi, which is um, a uh, typically um, between sort of seven and twelve uh, uh, piece um, band uh, that that um, you pay, you go to this one part of town and you hire them um, to go serenade your loved one. And you, depending on the scale um, and their quality, you pay more or less money. Um, and um, I, I've got three ones, three people for my loved one. I didn't have very much money when I was young. Um, and, um, and again, very, uh, very uh, musical, Kind of culture, very loud. Um, so, so I guess for me that I mean it's a kind of smattering. It's a collage of different images that hopefully give you a little bit of a picture of what the city is like. Um, and then, and then there's this. And this was um, the drug wars started uh, probably in the 70s um, as I was growing up. As a young child, um, uh, the, uh, the uh, Colombians realized that they needed a hub for the distribution uh, of primarily cocaine at that time that was closer to the United States. And through some uh, deals, um, decided that Mexico um, uh, was the place. And um, uh, so there were, there were some cartels closer to the border and then some cartels in the city of Guadalajara, which is central Mexico. Um, and through, through that period, the, um, the drug um, uh, businesses and the drug, I guess, operations have grown dramatically. Um, so last year, the, um, the estimated revenue for uh, Mexico through drug trafficking was $40 billion, which is more than the country makes through the sale of oil. Uh, um, and the deaths, um, you know, from uh, our, the 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 the, um, the operations are at such a scale that um, the, the 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 army can't do anything, the DEA can't do anything. They can't compete. They're they're too well armed. They're too well trained. Um, they're too organized. Uh, the deaths uh, um, have been estimated to about 200,000 over the last 20 years. Um, so, absolutely devastating. Devastating. Um, particularly to uh, a city where um, people make uh, uh, the, a minimum wage, which is $6 a day, and can make you know, $500 a day if they turn to drugs. So um, we're talking about extreme quantities, of course, um, bigger than um, the world has ever seen, not even in, in the, in the uh, famous uh, uh, Colombian cartels did we see this these quantities and this amount of money? It was just um, just it's just staggering. I have a little anecdote which you can't repeat outside of these walls. <laughs> but when I was growing up, I would I was going to school with the sons and daughters of drug dealers, as everyone they were everywhere, so you couldn't really avoid it. And I knew a guy who invited us uh, when when I was about ten, invited us for his birthday party, and. We had piñatas, which are um, these um, uh, decorated, um, usually earthen uh, vases that hang from a tree and someone pulls it with a string and you try and smash it. They're usually filled with lollies. Well, this one was filled with $10 bills ro rolled up. <laughs> so as soon as the parents realized this, they, you know, they were in such a panic and such a, in such horror, they you know, tore us all away and anyway. Quite devastating. Um, anyway, so so that in a way is a good segue to I guess the second part of my talk, which is maybe more um, academic, and I will read. So please excuse me. But this is some research that I did. Um, it's ongoing research, which has led to the project that I'm doing now um, in informal settlement revitalization. But it's some research that I started many years ago in Latin America. Um, looking at slums and the conditions for slums and informality with a view that uh, particularly in, in Latin American cities, um, and it's the same I think across the world, but particularly in Latin American cities, the cities have this very particular pattern of growth where um, there is a kind of cent center that's well planned 
and then a periphery that is unplanned, informal, and over time becomes formalized. So there's this cycle, these cycles of from informality to formality. So of course, the urbanist um, theories have been uh, very much trying to understand how we can now better support informality because it becomes the city eventually, it becomes the formal city. So, so I guess this was my line of, of, of research. Um, and it was conducted with, uh, um, while, in fact, while I was still at RMIT, not, not yet at Monash University. Um, so just to give you some numbers, and I don't, I don't want to bore you with numbers, but they are important. So um, 2003, uh, at one billion squatters out of six billion people worldwide, and squatters are not necessarily the only thing I'm looking for in informal uh, in, in informal um, kind of conditions, but squatters are a good, uh, and, and by squatters I mean someone that is living in a piece of land that they are not um, uh, renting or occupying legally. Um, they, they don't own or they're not renting legally. It's extra legal. Uh, um, occupancy is a good measure for the amount of informal activity in any one uh, place. So one billion squatters out of six billion people in 2003 uh, expect, expected to grow to 3.5 billion squatters uh, by 2050 in a population of nine billion. These are conservative estimates. In fact, this was, I think, from 2013. I couldn't find a more recent graphic. But now we're expecting 9.8 billion. And this is more like, probably more like 4 billion. But the thing to, to consider there is, of course, the, the, as, as, as population, world populations expand, uh, squatter settlements will, will grow. But this is more than a third. It's almost half, whereas here was a fifth. One out of six, four out of 10, right? Um, so that's, that's quite staggering. Um, maybe I won't read, I'll just, I'll just talk it through. And, and of course, a lot of this growth is happening in what are, what are called megacities. Megacities are cities that are um, up to 10, or for, sorry, from 10 million people. Um, Guadalajara is not quite that because there are particular ways in which megacity uh, populations are, um, are calculated. But if you look at the, uh, at the overall um, peri-urban area and urban uh, agglomerations, it is a megacity. Um, this is uh, the city um, in 2006 uh, with about six million people and with about a million and a half uh, living in, in over 3,000 informal settlements, particularly in the, as you can see, in the ring surrounding the the periphery. Uh, Arenales Tapatios is a, uh, was one of the case studies um, that we looked at. Um, so th this was material that led to the book, Opportunistic Urbanism. Um, but it was, so it was effectively divided into a, a series of themes which were looking at how all of these things are interconnected. Economies are interconnected with employment, is in, are interconnected with housing, um, and so on. And Arenales Tapatios is interesting because it's one of the older informal settlements, um, and uh, um, there's a very, very difficult situation here with um, the, the drug trafficking situation in Arenales Tapatios. means, in fact, that it's been developing faster than it would have had no illicit activity been having, happening because there is uh, more money. Um, so the city, uh, sorry, this part of the city is unserviced. Um, it has no mains water, no main sewage, um, very uh, little um, servicing of any kind, infrastructure. Um, uh, residents pay for water, um, they pay for garbage collection, and the, even though um, they, uh, the, they are the poorest, they are in fact paying the most um, uh, for these kinds of services as bought water is much more expensive, of course, than Maine's water. There are different patterns that emerge. In, um, you can see this is a, a kind of older part of the settlement where it, it's more um, sort of uh, 
uh, grid-like. It's following a kind of regular grid. And then um, often uh, on the edges of this grid, you'll have irregularities because of topography or the way in which land is uh, illegally subdivided and acquired that then start to uh, create this, these patterns, which are then actually quite difficult to then convert into more formal patterns, and particularly with servicing, so providing uh, sewer mains and uh, service water and, um, and so on becomes difficult when you start to find these really um, uh, um, circuitous, I guess, patterns. In these locations, um, land is um, land tenure, that, that means um, the way in which you uh, a household relates to the land that they live on is insecure. So um, traditionally, what was agricultural land is sold, um, uh, informally subdivided and sold to individual households on, if you're lucky, a, a deed on a napkin or something. Sometimes there are no records whatsoever. And that means that tenure is insecure and governments can, in fact, um, evacuate people if they wish. They don't, they're not doing that so much anymore. There's been this paradigm shift from what used to be effectively uh, slum eradication programs, that is erasure, and relocating residents to typically high-rise apartments, um, which is not dissimilar to Indonesia or Vietnam, um, to uh, slum revitalization, which is effectively uh, the, the governments realizing that the cost, the, 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 not even just the social cost, but the economic cost to, uh, com to communities of trans, um, uh, transporting them from, uh, transplanting them effectively from, a, from their community to another location, so dislocating them from their work networks, from their, um, from their economic networks, came at a cost that was too high, and um, therefore supporting people in their community was seen as a more cost-effective um, cost uh, kind of approach to city development. Now, that is um, really quite a horrible way to think about it because, in a sense, um, yes, of course, of course one must think of, about cost, but if you think of the way in which these vulnerable communities are developing their, um, their networks, which are very often, or, or their employment, which is often quite precarious, they rely very heavily on the little things that they're able to accumulate over time. So every time you do something to that, you completely um, erase what has been an incremental process of, yeah, a, a, accumulation of, of these sorts of things. So these um, areas are, in this case, this was the theme of what we called appropriation. So the notion of temporary appropriation of space for things that you that, uh, spaces that you, did, that you didn't have in your own dwelling that you needed for like playing in the background or drawing clothes in the foreground. Um, and uh, in this case, a series of different conditions of, I guess, appropriation of land um, and appropriation of materials. So um, uh, in some way, it's a recycler's dream. You know, nothing gets wasted. Everything gets reused. Um, uh, you know, you'll see a house that looks like it's you know 50 years old, but in fact was built just last year because all the sheet material and all the materials for construction are um, are uh, are old. There are also um, different um, interesting kind of governance um, conditions of these settlements, where if and this is a good example, if a house is seen to be under construction, the government, governments are more lax about uh, different aspects of regulation. So, so this is a permanent house that wouldn't have changed in, in a decade, but it's just left so it looks as though it's still under construction because of these uh, reasons. So what we did is that we um, documented these conditions with great care, understanding how these um, kind of different strategies for appropriation, appropriation of space, appropriation of material, support the way in which the city develops. And they go, they go hand in hand. And remember, 
this, in 20, 30 years' time, will be prime real estate that will be selling for a lot of money because it will be part of the formal city. So there are, and, and, and of course I'm not a real estate developer, but there are even just economic imperatives which, the, which governments really listen to, of course, about why you should start thinking about these kinds of conditions in the way where you're supporting them and understanding them on the ground rather than, um, than uh, eradicating them. And uh, these, um, again, settlements, as I mentioned before, because of uh, a number of tax laws, a number of different tenure conditions, are in a, const in a pro constant process of evolution. They're very dynamic and um, very, um, and they're constantly changing. So within uh, um, a period of, of 10 years, they will transform you know, from, um, from uh, um, quite sort of nascent to um, much more established. And um, it's well known in the literature, what's called incremental housing that um, often you'll start with a little bathroom, maybe just a bathroom and a kitchen in one room, and then over time another room gets added, and over time one room is expanded to one side, then, then on top, and so on. So um, I didn't, didn't bring a video, but we've, we've got um, a, an interesting animation of how over a period of 10 years, these, uh, this particular uh, neighborhood transformed in a, in a very slow but um, kind of um, even way. So what that means is that you can understand the way in which um, you can start to connect, for example, the way in which lending happens um, in micro mortgages, as they're called, or different me financial mechanisms for bringing people like this into the formal economy, which is a big part of the theory of how you improve um, conditions in terms of um, financial incentives. Itinerant relationships. So again, um, in, in the case, this is more, is this closer to the center now? But um, uh, in dense urban conditions that don't have necessarily a lot of public space, every nook and cranny gets used all the time for different, different purposes. This is just a, um, a dancing class uh, in, in, in an evening during the day, this would be full of street vendors uh, selling food. Um, and this thing, which is called a tiangi, so it's an informal market, and you'd be, you know, they're everywhere around the world, around developing world settings. Um, informal markets that sprout um, typically one or, you know, over one day, um, they set up and then they dismantle over one day. But the impact um, in the city is quite extraordinary. So there are 300 markets, and this is nothing compared to Mexico City. Mexico City has hundreds of thousands of informal markets. So the, um, the, their economic impact is extraordinary. Um, their, their, their impact into the GDP, um, depending on the availability of goods, depending on the, um, the, the kind of market swings, they can, um, these markets, for example, have a, a kind of interesting anecdote that um, they figured out a way, this was the only place where you could go and buy some cheap American stuff when I was growing up. You could, import duties were really high, and they were full of contraband. So Levi's were really sought after. Uh, jeans were really sought after. You couldn't buy them anywhere else. And they were sold in all of these informal markets, which stopped the big retailers bringing, importing Levi's for a decade or so. Because, they, because the street was flooded with them. So it, they, have, they can really swing the um, GDPs, they can really swing the way in which the markets move. Um, and this is just an example of a kind of a large urban you know, area, and on like, like a, a one day, just from Google Earth, uh, the, the, the amount of, of, of informal markets, um, and this is an example of one of the larger ones, um, that ex extends, you know, for forever, um, and again with uh, the with the understanding that these this kind of employment is intertwined and interconnected with a certain kind of housing. It's interconnected with a certain type of work. It's interconnected with a certain type of um, 
uh, of economic framework. We said it's very important to understand these conditions carefully in order to be able to support, uh, to support their advancement, I suppose, as, as, as simply as that. Um, and understanding how, um, for example, um, they are so nimble that they, they are the quickest to respond to markets, they're the quick, quickest to respond to location. So, for example, you can get seafood. That they, are, they, they are known for being um, the, the, uh, the retail outlets that can get the, the seafood quickest from the coast. So they, they have a very quick turnaround. Um, and again, they often will sprout in areas that will provide the most, um, the most return, of course, but are often very responsive to, uh, to the housing attached. So for example, in this case, a very large uh, program of social housing at the top, and you can just imagine you know, what that's like to live in, um, this repeated block. And uh, it's, it's government housing. There are thousands of them throughout the city. Um, and these people, are, again, are living on subsistence sort of, sort of wages. And uh, the, uh, the relationship between the, um, the workers of these, um, this public housing, and in particular, the, um, the, the female uh, component of the population, which are often not informal em em employment, um, uh, is really connected to these informal markets. So they sort of rely on one another. And if you, if you were to do anything to, to an informal market, um, you, would really dis, uh, you would really destroy the, that very delicate connection between those two systems. In fact, in the 70s, I was going to show other images, but I don't want to bore you with drawings. In the 70s, there was a really interesting program of the, the, the municipality of Guadalajara saying, that's it, we've had enough of these ridiculous, you know, informal markets. They're everywhere, they're filthy. What we're going to do is we're going to build formal markets. And there was a program where they were, they built 320 formal markets around the city, large buildings. It was for, uh, you know, my father was an architect, was, uh, was so happy he could design some markets. You know, there was a huge sort of, a lot of work for architects. And within basically five years of, the, of, of finishing all that construction, that whole program, the formal markets were all empty. And you had all these informal markets colonizing all of the outside, around all the streets, around the formal markets, because people knew that that's where you went to buy stuff. So, um, so, so now what's happening is that, uh, and, and it hasn't actually changed that much, the informal market uh, vendors will hire space for storage inside the formal markets. <laughs> anyway, so, so, so really taking these things seriously and studying them, understanding their kind of dynamics, understanding how, uh, again, housing is interconnected, the commerce is interconnected to, um, to, uh, to work. And, um, uh, mo mobile vendors is another one. Um, and I won't quote you numbers, but the numbers are staggering. And it's the same. Southeast Asia, is, is, is the numbers are far greater there, which I'm finding really, really interesting. Um, and um, then really about, I guess, through this study, trying to understand how, as an urbanist or a, a, you know, a, an architect, these these um, conditions can inform the way in which we think about cities and design cities. Clearly eradicating things doesn't necessarily work, not in these environments. So we developed a series of questions, kind of re ongoing research questions. Can there be a more inclusive, flexible urban policy that accommodates and supports these conditions? And the answer is yes, and we're seeing those in different ways around the world, um, where, again, this notion of stop of not eradicating slums but revitalization programs of kind of urban, urban acupuncture uh, uh, improvements that over time have a much better effect were the result of, of, of policy shifts. Where there had to be a body of research that um, that informed uh, the uh, the shifts in policy to, to then support these these paradigm shifts. 
How can architecture contribute in the context where hardship abounds and the emphasis is taken away from the architectural object? So as uh, coming from this background, we were, um, we were uh, tasked with, well, separate to this, but we were tasked to set up a new program of architecture at Monash. Uh, Shane Murray, Louise's partner, and I moved from Aramati to set up a new architecture program at Monash. And one of the questions we were always asking is, what is the, what is the contemporary architect look like? How do we educate architects in the 21st century? And for me, it was very clear, and also for Shane, I think, that it is much more about understanding, um, understanding the processes that is social context, economic context, that inform architecture to, and, and I guess, move the emphasis away from this obsession with the object as the end of architecture itself, more into the process, which is really, um, you know, can be applied to slums as, 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 as well as applied here in, in Melbourne, of course. And, and a more interesting question for me, but can informal activities inform urban policy in more affluent Western economies? And um, I think, again, Germany has been, I think, at the forefront of understanding the value of some of these more lax, kind of flexible uh, frameworks for, um, for commercial activity primarily. So they've instituted a whole series of policies that allow for, um, in many cities, but Berlin's a good example, allow for the occupation of space. Renew Newcastle was in some way a program here in Australia. Uh, 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 just, just a change in policy that allowed for a different type of lease to take place in the shop that meant that you could rent something for a short period of time um, and to completely transform the city. So that's not, it didn't cost any more money. In fact, it made a lot of money. It was just about thinking about things slightly differently. Um, so, so the project that we're um, doing now, so this is, this is interesting for me to present because I feel it's been a, quite a long time since I've looked into this, particularly in the Latin American context, but the project that we're doing now is very much informed by this, um, uh, particularly how um, in these uh, informal settlement conditions you can really build on, um, really respect and understand and analyze the way in which things happen and they happen for very good and very particular reasons and support those things to develop uh, in different ways um, over time. So that's the, that's the lecture. Thank you. We do have a roving mic if um, anyone has a question uh, to ask Diego. Hi. Um, the colours seem to be a big thing in all the architecture that you um, represented tonight. And I was wondering if you could just elaborate on the use of colour um, from, the, from the city context in the historical sense. And also, um, the Catholic um, influence of the city and how I'm, I'm still puzzled as how they let the sex and the, the different cults arise that you spoke about in, in the city being built. So I was just I was hoping you could elaborate on that if you could. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah, well, colour, I mean, um, I think colour color is an interesting sort of... Um, I guess way of reading a culture, I would argue, and I'm not a you know cultural theorist, but oh yeah, sorry, sorry, here it is. Uh, need that one. I said cu culture. Uh, sorry, color is a different, is an interesting way of reading a culture, in my view. If you look at you know, just look at IKEA for example, or the Swedish color palette, and then look at you know a, a, kin, a sort of Mexican color palette, and I think. There are, um, there's a long-standing history of arts and crafts um, way before, you know, colonial times, a very rich use of color, uh, and, and the, the murals even with, you know, the, the Mayan 
the Incas, the Aztecs, and many other um, 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 cultures that used really vibrant color. I mean, the other thing is color provides a really quick, cheap way to get high impact. And you see that in Indonesian settlements as well. If you want to um, make something precious or valuable, one thing you can do is just give it a coat of paint. And um, so, um, and, and I think what was interesting about Luis Barragan's um, architecture was that he really embraced this um, kind of use of, traditional use of color and, and um, the very significant cultural attachments that came with it. And what was interesting about this was this, this was in a time, this is from, uh, what is it? Well, there are different times, but sort of the 40s and the 50s of high modernism, where you had like white buildings that were almost detached of context and color as well. And he, he was really focused on um, effectively the, um, the use of color as a way of enhancing spatial experience. So, um, so that's been, um, I think, it's, it has a long historical lineage. Um, and um, yeah, it's, a, it's actually quite similar in Indonesia, I find. Uh, that there's a, there's a lot of color, it's, it, it's often um, uh, loud and it goes along with a kind of um, the, um, the cultural way of engaging, which is also loud. Yeah. And sorry, that was a bit of a mumbled answer, but jumbled answer. But the, the, the Catholicism question is an interesting one, and that's a really, really difficult one because, of course, um, of course, the cities are becoming, um, they are. They're modern cities, they're contemporary cities, and there's this whole veil of conservatism, and, you know, um, in, in some way, not so much now, certainly when I was growing up, but not, not so much now, of, uh, of um, religious fervor. And, um, and all these sects, I think, sects um, that, are, you know, that arise, are, I think, connected to that. They're connected to a kind of extremist view of what religion should be, um, and they're not really, in fact, that different uh, in, in, in many ways. So it's, it's, it's kind of good ground for, for these extremist uh, groups, you know, to, to, to sprout. And in fact, many um, of these are led by extremist um, conservatists, conserv uh, conserve, <laughs> conservatives, whatever, from coming from Spain, coming from other locations in Latin America to Mexico, because it's it's um, very seen to be very very fertile ground for these um, kinds of groups. Thank you so much for that talk. It was really interesting. Um, I'm really interested in how um, economies instrumentalize ecologies in order to exist and continue to grow. Mm -hmm. And I, I found that to be an underlining element of your talk when you, when you sort of mentioned that the responsiveness of marketeers to be able to provide the freshest fish the fastest, but also that some of these locations that became informal architectural locations or you know, living spaces were once agriculture. Yeah. I wonder if in your studies you found that sort of informal ecological relations between these informal architectures has, have sprouted up, just like the markets, and how do people sort of negotiate those um, ecological relationships? It's yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first, maybe the most, maybe the most um, obvious example is where there are um, basically sort of um, micro-agriculture um, urban agriculture ha happening everywhere. So wh wherever there's a little bit of land that's not used, you'll see you know, chilies being grown. Or, um, but then also how they are, um, it's very interesting how there is a kind of informal governance around that where if you're caught stealing the chilies, you know, you know someone's watching and, and um, they, they rely on communities working together so 
because often you will have dwellings that don't have any public space or green space anywhere near, you have to go a little ways outside of your house. You rely on the kind of community in order to do that. And there are many programs, uh, research programs that have been looking at urban agriculture and how that's been, well, it's been happening, of course, for forever. Um, but now in more dense conditions and in informal conditions, it's very interesting because of course, often, and maybe more so in Southeast Asia where the, some of the conditions are more dire, but that, that is um, for households that are, that are at, um, in the lowest kind of uh, economic strata, the, the poorest people often rely on the crops. Um, in fact, in Indonesia where I'm doing some work, there's a huge program of growing chilies. Uh, chilies are actually not cheap, and that's a really good way of turning around um, having a bit of um, extra cash quickly. Um, so so that's, a, that's a very direct kind of connection. Um, and in fact, uh, governments have realized as well that, that's an that if you want to protect and support people where they are, you have to protect these ventures. Otherwise, you're really um, compromising their income, which means that they then have to go and join a cartel or, or, or steal a car. Um, so it's actually really, um, and, and I think there's been a lot of, a lot of um, progress in that regard. And Indonesia, in fact, is a really, I've found, is a really, while problematic in many ways, they're really progressive in the way in which they support people in place. And there are all these programs, for example, of urban agriculture in the slums, specifically looking at how you get, how you form co-ops, how you incentivize, how you, um, how you sell, um, and 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 so on. So, so I think I think that's a that's a nice way to think about it. Like, ecology is connected to economies. Like, it's all just one system, and you need to think of it systemically. Um, but again, where, um, I mean, one of the things we're doing in Indonesia is we're promoting decentralized uh, waste management and say wetlands, and um, uh, if. Um, if people don't understand that these, this is connected to their well-being, they will not necessarily look after it, particularly if they've got, you know, in Maslow's hierarchy, they're right at the bottom. They're thinking about how they're going to, you know, feed their children tomorrow or something to be, I mean, I'm being extreme, but, you know, they, that, that means that you have to be very direct and very explicit and very um, supportive in, in, in very simple ways of, of these kinds of ideas. Um, yeah, I just want to say thanks for the talk again. That was fantastic. But I was just interested in the point that you made towards the end about that, um, you know, the potential for that new paradigm for architecture in a modern context. So how do you move, that example you talked about, moving away from the, from the object and the building to something that's more contextual and more responsive? And you gave that example about the markets and you know how that formalizing that market structure was a failure. Um, what are some other examples that you've come across in your research of how, of how that um, that kind of you know responsive mode of architecture can can really um, support the way that you know urban development occurs? Yep. Um, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I think there are different ways. Um, the one, say, particularly for the Melbourne context, which is where I've been doing a lot of my work in the recent years, uh, in fact, with, with Shane at Monash, um, is around um, housing, low-income housing, volume housing, mass housing, whatever you want to call it, and looking at how you, you start to connect, um, connect economic structures uh, more directly with architecture and, and I'll just give you a little example of what that means in our in what we've been doing is that if you think for example of a house that um, that can um, is that should be affordable the first question is well affordable to whom and well of course affordable to the person who's living in it but if you think of the person who's living in it their conditions are not static or their economic levels are not static so they might have as a younger person have less money and different needs to what they would as an older 
person, maybe they have a family, etc. So, so housing that is adaptable to need um, and internal arrangements that can easily be adapted, for example, to be able to rent part of your house at a certain point um, when you need to, um, or expand it at another point when you need to, um, and maybe as you grow old and you need to subsidize your retirement, you can also s subdivide part of your house and sell it. Um, so that's one simple way, in, and that has very little to do with um, design. I mean, it costs no more to deliver a good plan that can be subdivided than to deliver a bad plan that can't. It just requires a little bit more thought and you know, fire breaks in the right places and, and a little bit of policy shift to allow for that to take place. So you can take that logic and, th and think about then um, that the most powerful, in my view anyway, architecture arises out of being able to instrumentalize these different ways of thinking about economies, about social structures and so on in the design in very direct ways. Um, yeah. Did we have another question over here? Well, I'd like to thank Diego Ramirez Lovering for his uh, fantastic talk and sharing his uh, insights uh, from his research. I'd also like to add that the Cities of Architecture series is coming back next year. Um, we'll be announcing the program uh, soon, so please keep in touch uh, on the newsletter and on the website. Uh, and now please join me in thanking Diego.